Welcome to our latest episode of the IIF Global Regulatory Update Podcast. I'm Martin Boer, Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of International Finance in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Leslie Ritter, Senior Vice President, Cyber Credit Risk Group at Moody's Investors Service in New York, and a repeat guest on the podcast. Leslie regularly publishes great credit-focused cybersecurity reports and develops cybersecurity data sets for credit analysis. Leslie and her team recently released their global cross-sector cyber survey report based on a 90-question survey of more than 1,700 respondents, which is full of interesting findings about cybersecurity practices around the world in all sectors, including financial services. We will also be discussing the impact of generative AI on cyber risk, which is an issue we have all been following closely this year. Leslie, it's great to see you, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Martin. Thanks for having me again. It's great to be back. Excellent. And we're also recording this in person, which we haven't done in a while, so it's also great to see you in person, Leslie. Why don't we start with the survey report that you've just released? It's quite comprehensive, and with 1,700 respondents, a lot more than your previous study in 2020. Can you summarize for us just briefly the key findings from this year's report? Yeah, sure. So first, I want to say that we were really pleased to see how many issuers participated in this voluntary cyber survey. We saw a 30% increase over 2020 edition, which is very encouraging. But even more exciting for us is that we saw a significant increase in the number of issuers responding from regions beyond the U.S., which is telling because in, in our view, it's a recognition that the countries all around the world are recognizing the risk that cyber is posing globally. Now, in terms of the key takeaways, the responses show a lot of improvement in how our issuers are managing cyber risk, particularly with regards to improved executive and board involvement and growing cyber budgets. But the picture isn't perfect and it rarely is, right? There are still some long-standing structural challenges like better protecting against cyber attacks affecting vendors, as well as addressing the pervasive shortage of, of cyber staff that remain. Also, there are some new emerging risks, generative AI being front and center there. Excellent. You said a lot of the sectors have high to very high cyber risk exposures. And I was just wondering, to the extent that you can, if you looked at the results for the financial sector, including perhaps banks, insurers, finance companies, are there any specific risks in the financial sector that are different than the other sectors that you looked at? So, yeah, that's right, Martin. We published a cyber risk heat map late last year where we rank ordered 71 sectors in terms of their relative cyber risk exposure and potential impact to credit quality. There, the financial services sector risk level was flagged as high across the board, including the banking sector. I'm calling this out because it's a change to what we saw in our 2019 heat map where we had categorized banks as very high risk. The thought process behind bringing the, the risk level down was the fact that based on our survey responses, we saw that the financial services cyber risk mitigation practices relative to other sectors were particularly strong. And we thought it was important to reflect the inroads that they've made in terms of, of protecting against cyber. And that's why banks were brought down in risk level from very high to high. Now, that's in terms of gross risk exposure, I think, which is the question you were really asking, not taking into account mitigants. Financial services industry in general and banking sector in particular remains an extremely attractive targets to all types of attackers. They have an extensive digital footprints. They are a critical component of a broader economy, which makes any disruption to their services very problematic. They host lots and lots of valuable data that can be resold in the dark web. 
And obviously, they sit at a nexus of financial transactions, which makes it a very fertile ground for any type of cyber fraud. Yeah, we've often heard at the financial sector is both the largest target, but also one of the most sophisticated when it comes to investment and technology um, employees. I was also fascinated by the regional breakdown where you showed different results for different parts of, of the world. For example, if we look at the number of breaches, it seems like in the Americas, there's still an overwhelming amount of breaches compared to other sectors, but it's sort of starting to narrow. And whereas in other regions, like for example, Europe, Middle East, Africa, although from a lower base, it seems like the number of incidents are increasing. Are there sort of any more insights you have into these trends on a regional basis? Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting trend to follow. And it, it started in 2022, and it's been ongoing since. In our 2023 Cyber Outlook, which we published in January, we'll have the 2024 version of it out in January this next year. We anticipated seeing a continued increase in the number of cyber attacks that targeted issuers uh, outside the U.S. And I say issuers, that's how we talk about companies and organizations within the Moody's family. And the reason for the increased attacks outside of the U.S. is because after a number of very high-profile ransomware events uh, that had the potential to spill over into the broader economy here in the States, I'm thinking about Colonial Pipeline, JBS, for instance, the U.S. government put ransomware gangs under more pressure through sanctions, arrests, and cryptocurrency seizures. So attackers want to look for easier targets to go after, and so they've moved on to other markets. I say all this, but I wouldn't want your audience to take this to mean that attackers have turned away from U.S. or U.S.-based companies completely, right? Just last month, we heard about a number of attacks impacting very visible U.S. companies like MGM and Clorox, for example. So... If I think about it, maybe the right way to couch this is that though the share of attacks impacting U.S. companies has come down as organizations in other countries are also experiencing more attacks, the total number of attacks on U.S. companies still remains high. Yeah, so still a pretty sizable slice of a growing pie. So let's talk about what the issuers are doing about this. One of the findings in your survey was that spending as a share of technology budget on cyber is still increasing. What are the reasons for this? So there are a lot of cost pressures, right, that are pushing uh, cyber spending up. You can think of regulatory pressures, cyber insurance costs, inflation as uh, the most obvious ones. But I think there's more to the story, right? I wouldn't want to discount the rising awareness of the risk cyber poses to the health of an organization and the rapidly evolving attacker capabilities as two other important drivers here. We mentioned earlier that uh, the visibility of cyber across the enterprises has grown. So better communication and understanding about the risk has also likely helped support increasing spending. Another driver um, that I have to mention is obviously digitalization that we're seeing across the board, all industries. And obviously that digitalization has the potential of increasing the attack surface that attackers can exploit. And so consequently, organizations are having to spend more on cyber in order to make sure that these digital systems are secure. So I guess in all, there's just a lot of factors at play that keep pushing this cyber spend up. Now the question is whether or not organizations are going to be able to continue spending at this level going forward when they're at the same time grappling with a lot of other economic pressures. Yeah. You also found that cyber practices differ widely by sector. How would you gauge the maturity of the financial services sector to the extent that you can compared to other sectors? And what sort of practices are being prioritized there? 
Yeah, so generally the survey results show that the financial services sector remains one of the most mature in terms of cyber risk mitigation programs. We talked about the banking sector earlier as being brought down in, in the risk level from our perspective from very high to high to take into account the fact that they are uh, very advanced in, in their mitigation techniques. It won't be a surprise to anyone here to hear that they're also amongst the most resourced sectors. And as a result, they're more likely to use some of the more advanced, expensive, time-consuming types of mitigation practices available. And they're also able to attract the scarce cyber talent that's needed to defend themselves. If you look at, at the data, the financial services companies have consistently been spending more on cyber than peers in almost all other sectors. I would probably exclude the, some big players in the tech space, but apart from that, banks in particular, and with insurance not far behind spending a lot on cyber. But I'll give you some examples so you can wrap some, your head around some numbers here. So cyber spend as a percentage of IT for U.S. banks specifically has been around 9 to 10% per year over the last five years. Now, remember that it's percent of IT. That means that as banks have digitized, they have actually increased their share of spend on, on cyber. Hmm. Now, compare this to corporates. U.S. corporates, on the other hand, have been spending between 5% going to 9% over the same time period. So there's a big difference there between what the banking sector has been doing and what the corporate sector has been doing. That's great. If I can also ask you on the insurance side then, Leslie, it's interesting to see that spending on cybersecurity insurance continues to increase. And and we often hear that premiums are going up in terms of cybersecurity insurance. So why do you think that the spending is increasing? Is it is it because the premiums are going up or is it just more spend to get more coverage? It's it's premiums have been going up. That's that's where it, it, this has been coming from. So it's been widely reported that cyber insurance premiums increased significantly between 2020 and 2022. Cyber insurance underwriters were experiencing losses and because of all of the cyber attacks that were happening. And as a result, they had to increase how much they charged for the cyber insurance they were providing. If I look at our survey results, we saw we saw that the median increase in cyber premiums during that time was about 50%. But some sectors were actually much more impacted than others. So, for example, anecdotally, we know that some U.S. companies in the education or manufacturing space, just to name two industries, saw premium hikes of above 300% in 2021. That's very substantial. And as I said, these rises were really tied to losses that the insurance underwriters were experiencing. Now, the premiums peaked in 2021, and since then, they've, they've eased off, but they remain still at higher levels, right? So the rate of increase has decreased, but the rates are still high. Looking ahead, uh, if you've been following the, what's happening in the attack space in 2023, there's an uptick in the number of attacks, right? So that could potentially result in an increase in premiums again for next year. We'll know more about this in early 2024 when the insurance companies release the numbers. You also mentioned several times, Leslie, cyber talent and, and the fact that there is a risk to organizations in terms of the shortage of cybersecurity talent. What did you find there and how are issuers addressing this problem? So the cyber talent gap still hasn't been soft. Some of the stats show that there is up to 3.4 million unfilled position in the cyber workspace today. That's a very significant number. Financial services companies are really at underprivileged positions here because, as we've been talking, they have uh, sizable budgets, which they can deploy to at attract the scarce talents. But it's more difficult for others. So what others are doing, they're looking at outsourcing the roles if and where possible. 
but uh, actually we indicated that if they could, they would hire more staff in-house. It's just not attainable for a lot of parishioners, most uh, primarily the medium and smaller sized ones. And are there other non-financial risks that issuers are worried about, for example, including supply chains or vendors or third parties? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you're bringing this up because I, th- I think this is one of the critical areas that we probably don't focus enough on in an area that, based on our survey response, seems to have opportunity for improvements in a fairly straightforward way. So I'll give you some examples here. In our survey, we asked financial services issuers if they required a cyber assessment of new vendors before giving them access to their networks. 90% of them said yes, that they did in all or most cases, and 10% said that they only did so on occasion or never. Now, when we asked them if they required a cyber assessment of existing vendors during the life of the contract, once they're connected to the network, then the number dropped to 79%. So 79% of issuers said that they do so in most cases, and 21% of them said they only do so occasionally or never. There's a disconnect here, in my opinion. Cyber risk isn't static at all, and and performing ongoing cyber assessments of vendors that connect into your networks seems like a very good thing to do in that context, right? If you'll indulge me, I have just one more point in this topic, and that that has to do with the fact that when we ask our issuers if they require that their vendor notify them if they were experiencing any kind of cyber incident or if they had identified any new vulnerabilities, here 73% of respondents said that they required it in, in most or all cases. But 27% of them said that they only occasionally or never required these types of notifications. This seems like a glaring gap that should be able to be addressed fairly easily. Yeah. And I think also since the solar winds case has happened, that there's just been so much more focus by the regulators and supervisors globally and by the standard setters on third-party risk and about having to notify and incident reporting. And, and also we see in Europe, for example, a direct supervision now, at least in the financial sector of third-party vendors. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's been surprising is the results in third-party vendors' cyber risk mitigation in our survey were very similar in this version versus the 2020 version. So during that time frame, all these regulations are coming up, solar winds happened, and still there's still these these odd gaps. Well, it's a great survey, Leslie. And, and I do encourage folks to find it on the internet and to read it for themselves. It's got a lot of really good findings in there. You've also produced a separate study together with BitSight on the impact of generative AI on cybersecurity. And so in the last few minutes, I just want to ask you a little bit about that as well. Although generative AI has its benefits, your early view seems to be that it may increase cyber risk. Can you explain a bit where you see that balance? Sure. Well, I think our house view is that Gen AI is a step change in the global cybersecurity landscape, both on the offensive and defensive side. So the net impact will be different for everyone, but we think that small and medium-sized issuers are particularly exposed to downside risk over the near to medium term. And that's largely due to, once again, a resource issue, right? As well-funded state-backed actors leverage Gen AI to develop cyber weaponry and inevitably release these tools into the broader attacker ecosystems, those least able to maintain strong cyber defenses, namely small and medium companies, are going to be left in a weaker position. Over time, sophisticated defensive tools will become more commoditized, they will become available to a broader subset of participants, but that's going to take time. And then again, when that happens, it's very likely that attackers are going to be leveraging Gen AI for the next big thing. Great. Can you also explain some of the ways in which generative AI 
can help firms with their cybersecurity and identifying threats? Are there ways these new technologies, I know it's still very early days, Leslie, but are there ways that this technology can also mitigate cyber risk? So we had a lot of discussions with our affiliate BitSide on this, and, and the way they explained it to us is that you can think of it in two broad categories. The more aspirational one, the more exciting one, but it is aspirational at this, one, at this point, relates to predicting how attackers will go after an organization. But to do this well, the Gen AI tool is going to need access to a lot of data. Now, if you think about it, historically, companies and organizations have been extremely hesitant to share data about cyber breaches and attacks, right? So it's likely that only a few companies with the largest data sets will be able to develop this kind of tools, at least initially. Now, the second category is the more traditional approach or the traditional application of Gen AI. It would leverage Gen AI to perform some more run-of-the-mill type activities that are very time-consuming for cyber experts, but that could be sort of delegated to, to Gen AI. So if you think about it, some sort of report writing and the like, which allow the cyber expert to pass it on to Gen AI and the cyber expert can be focused on some more higher value cyber risk mitigation activities. Excellent. And let me ask you just as a final question, Leslie, about cybersecurity governance, which you also mentioned up top. How has the executive oversight by the board and by um, senior managers at these issuers' firms, how has the governance changed on cybersecurity since you first undertook this survey three years ago? Executive oversight has improved. That's very clear. We say that for two main reasons. One is that the reporting structure between the CISO and the executive team has become much tighter. So our survey shows that 90% of issuers said their cyber manager reported directly to the CEO, CFO, or CIO. This metric was only 61% in the 2020 survey. The other data point that I would highlight is that the frequency of regularly scheduled briefings between CISOs and CEOs has also increased. 45% of CISOs said that they now brief CEOs monthly versus 22% in the 2020 survey. So taken together, this means that the visibility of the CISO across the organization has materially improved. And this has helped steer cyber away from being perceived as this niche IT-related issue to being more widely accepted as a risk that's relevant to the broader enterprise. Leslie, thank you so much for this great conversation and for your sharp insights on cybersecurity risk and the potential impact of generative AI on cybersecurity, and for joining me again on this IIF Global Regulatory Update podcast. We also thank everyone for listening to this podcast. Please consider subscribing to the IIF Global Regulatory Update on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and goodbye.